Hi, this isn't the ordinary guy from the Brains Matter podcast, www.brainsmatter.com. And this isn't Steve Nerlich from Cheap Astronomy, www.cheapastro.com. But this is Astronomy for Non-Human Life Forms. Isn't it just sheer hubris to assume that us humans are the only ones who have ever looked up and searched the sky for meaning and even tried to look beyond the visible spectrum for other hidden data that might help us understand the world we live in. So this podcast is for all those four-footed, winged, finned, shelled, antennied, pseudopodiated... Okay, okay, Steve, I think they get it. Oh, sorry. So will we start with the birds? Let's do that. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So... Um, you had some bird stuff, did you uh, want to I had your some one? Or you... All right, is that right? Um, yep. Well, I, I wanted to tell you about some German researchers back in the 1950s who were doing things with birds in planetariums. And what they would do was release the birds with a particular sort of night sky projected on the planetarium ceiling. What they found was if they and remember these are northern hemisphere birds, if they presented those birds with an autumn night sky, and this is where um, Betelgeuse is in the east, if it's an autumn night sky, the birds would fly south. So they're flying south for the winter. But if it was a spring night sky, they would fly north, and they'd know it was spring because Betelgeuse was in the west. Well, there are some seabirds called the leeches storm petrels, named after the wonderful William Alfred Leach. The sworn enemy of the petrel is the slaty-backed gull. That sounds very Harry Potter, I think. In a paper by, and I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this correctly, Yutaka Watanuki at Hokkaido University in 1986, he said that petrels reduced their activity in moonlight when predation rates by the slaty-backed gulls was highest. It was found that petrel activity levels were inversely correlated with light intensities from our moon. And the conclusion was that the nocturnal activity and moonlight avoidance by the petrel colonies evolved as a defence mechanism. So am I right in thinking they don't fly when the moon's up because they're visible to their their enemies? Pretty much. You know, when they're going foraging Mm -hmm. post-dusk, they do realise that when the moon's out, they're more likely to become dinner. Yeah, well, well, that makes sense. Um, Well, I might might backtrack a bit. Yep. What, what's interesting with the, the planetarium experiments was, and this was a different group of researchers, their hypothesis was what the birds were really doing. This, this is a, a species called indigo buntings. So these, these indigo buntings were nocturnal flyers and they were migratory birds and they flew south for the winter. So that was the sort of scenario they were trying to set up in the, the planetarium. So... Their hypothesis was that the birds always flew away from the axis of rotation in the sky, which for the Northern Hemisphere is Polaris. Mm-hmm. So the whole sky rotates around Polaris. And they were pretty sure that's what the cue for the birds was because they could just change the orientation of the planetarium projector to create an artificial axis of rotation. When they did that, the birds flew away from that axis, thinking that it was now north and they were hence trying to fly south. So rather than 
having this accurate star map in their heads, it was really a case of they just over time could see which way the sky was rotating and just fly away from the, the axis of rotation. That's my story. What are you good? Yeah, so um, there's a report in the Bulletin of Entomological Research in 2003, which had a paper published which talked about the Lutsomia longipalpus, and I think I pronounced that correctly. It turns out that these sandflies are sensitive to particular wavelengths of light. They conducted three separate experiments with a control set of wavelengths, a higher intensity, and a lower intensity. In all the experiments, ultraviolet, which is about 350 nanometers, and blue-green-yellow, which is about 490 to 546 nanometer wavelengths, was more attractive to the sandflies than the control wavelength. There are a whole host of other experiments which they conducted, including whether there was differences in males and females. And what they eventually found was that the sandflies can discriminate between different wavelengths and different intensities. We normally associate this ability with having colour vision, but what that it also means is that the sandflies can navigate under moonlight or starlight conditions using light in the blue-green-yellow part of the spectrum to work their way around. That's the end of my one there. All right. I was telling you about how birds can navigate by the stars. Mm -hmm. They can also navigate by the sun. There's some researchers who've looked at swallows. Is that European or African swallows? (laughs) Well, even if an African swallow could carry a coconut, they're not migratory. So these migratory swallows, which are the European swallows, are often found perching on power lines. And if you look carefully, at least these researchers allege, in the morning they're always facing east, in the evenings they're always facing west. And what, what they're doing is getting their bearings from sunrise and sunset. And the birds can pick up polarized light from sunlight. So as the sun's coming up in the morning, it might not come up at due east, but the light that it's transmitting always has the same orientation. And it would seem the birds are able to pick up the light that's being polarised in a particular plane. That's telling them where due east is. So when they compare that to where the sun actually is, they get a reasonably good sense of what latitude they're at. I can keep going. Okay. (laughs) Um, What was the other thing? Well, I'll tell you more about pigeons. Okay. So birds have ways of navigating by night using the stars and by day using the sun, but they also have an extra sense. This is magnetoreception. And this is, of course, a sense for the Earth's magnetic field, Mm -hmm. which might help them get around when it's cloudy and overcast. Pigeons seem to be particularly good at that. You can give them these little goggles so they can't really see very far in front of them and they can still home. So pigeons, rather than be migratory, just have a strong urge to fly back to their nest, essentially. So they're homing pigeons. So they use their, their magnetic sense to, to home. So first to go out and then to come back again. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm finished. <laughs> okay. Um, All right, so now I'm going to talk about loggerhead sea turtles. And these sea turtles have an amazing sense of navigation and orientation, but it's not believed that they use visual cues such as the stars to navigate. As soon as the hatchlings are born, 
they go straight towards the open sea and they can maintain their heading well after you lose sight of land. So how do they manage these feats? So let's start at the beginning. Experiments were done on hatchlings back in 1960 and 1968 to see if they could find water if they had their eyes covered. They found that once the hatchlings had their eyes covered, they couldn't find their way to water. So it's believed that the oceanic horizon at night is brighter than the landward horizon, given that water reflects more moonlight and starlight than the land. If you can imagine yourself with Coke bottle glasses in front of your eyes, you might not see things clearly, but you can see where the light is. However, some experiments done in 1992 found that slope might be a driver as well as the amount of light. And, you know, the slope makes sense as land tends to slope towards the water in coastal areas. So going on a little bit from there, Lohman and Lohman in 93 also discovered that magnetic orientation played a part in directional preference for loggerhead turtles. The turtles oriented set to north in a geomagnetic field. They tested this by placing control conditions and observing when the turtles oriented themselves. And curiously, once the magnetic fields were reversed, so were the orientations of the turtles. So the best way to view the way loggerhead turtles orient themselves is through the following. From when they're hatchlings, from going from shore to the ocean, it's a combination of visual cues and the slope of the land. And once they're in the water close to land, they do it via wave orientation because as waves come closer to the shore, there's a certain periodicity as it comes closer to the shore as opposed to out in open water. And the open sea, where there's a lack of visual cues and a lack of periodicity, they go via magnetic orientation. And we can think of this as very similar to us human beings on Earth. And we also use astronomical cues for, um, for our orientation as well. We know which way the, the sun rises in the morning and sets in the evening. We also use street signs as other, uh, other cues to orient ourselves. And you might have a GPS in your car. So you might rely on one of these cues. If that breaks down, then you might use another cue, just depending on what's nearby. If there's a street sign nearby, you use that. If there's no street sign, you might use a GPS and so on. And that's exactly what the loggerhead turtles are doing. Mm-hmm. Did, did you know that the basis of a lot of magnetoreception is a compound called magnetite, which is a particular sort of iron ore where the electrons of a collection of iron atoms are all orientated in a particular way so that essentially you have a magnet. So magnetite is just a, a sort of natural magnetised material, but it would seem a lot of animals everywhere from bacteria up to complex um, animals like birds absorb that magnetite from the environment and at least in the bacteria and insects we know they further modify that material to essentially build crystals within their bodies and at least in the smaller animals we can tell they're essentially just lining those crystals up so that you have a compass needle within that animal and I can only refer to the small animals it becomes quite difficult to isolate the magnetite in larger animals because they're that much larger it's hard to sort of dig into their brains to find exactly where this magnetite is so i'm telling you all this because uh we also know that humans have magnetite in their brains uh it's unclear whether that's just a result of us absorbing some natural magnetite from the environment or whether it's a sort of evolutionary hangover from an ancestor that 
actually used it for magnetoreception, or whether, whether it does actually have some effect on our sense of the world. Some research has suggested there might be a few individuals within large groups who seem to be better at finding their way around with no visual cues than others. But it does seem to be a very weak sense if there is one at all. So I, I wonder if anyone feels they have magnetoreception at any level. I don't think I do. I, I don't either, but if you do, <laughs> please contact us. Yes, send emails, yes. And uh, you, you mentioned the um, magnetite just then, and I, I'm, I'm glad you did because I just want to um, talk a little bit about bees. Bees are colorblind in dim light, or, or mm. so it's thought anyway. They're primarily active during the day, and as we know, they've got compound eyes. William Kerfoot wrote a paper in Animal Behaviour in October 1967 that the nocturnal bee, uh, let me get this right, Spicodogastra texana, which was observed in some experiments in 1962, 1964 and 1965, that the foraging of texana was based on the lunar cycle and he classified it in two parts, the crepuscular period and the moonlight period. The crepuscular period is from between sunset and the end of twilight, so not a, a huge amount of time. And the moonlight period occurred from the day after the new moon until three days after the full, uh, the full moon. And during this time, foraging continued to happen as long as the moon was up. So Kerfoot wrote that lunar activity was an extension of the twilight foraging. And a paper called Biogenic Magnetite as a Basis for Magnetic Field Detection in Animals mentions that there are a large number, and we're talking about 10 to the 8, superpamagnetic magnetite crystals in honeybees. So for those people who aren't familiar with scientific notation, stick a 1 with uh, 9 zeros after it, and that's how many uh, crystals they have. Mm -hmm. So that, that's what I've got to say about bees. Thank you. <laughs> And, of course, since we're Australians, we should probably mention the magnetic termites of the Northern Territory. And these aren't ones where you walk around with a magnet and they come sticking to your magnet. That's true. <laughs> what they do do is to build very large termite mounds, which are anywhere from two metres to even three metres in height. And they are very accurately aligned to a north-south orientation. So they're sort of long and flat, if you like, pointing north and south, probably for the, the advantage of maximising the amount of heat that the nest receives. But it is thought they get that orientation through their own magnetic sense. Termites, like the bees that you talked about, certainly have these manufactured magnetite crystals within their bodies. Interestingly, not actually in their brains, it would seem. They're, they're somewhere in the thorax, so in, in the middle of their body rather than their head. Then I could tell you about magnetic bacteria. They, again, very clearly manufacture their magnetite crystals and you can very easily visualise a line of crystals within these bacteria under a microscope so it becomes very clear it really is just acting as a compass needle in that situation. The bacteria seem to use that magnetite mainly for the purpose of going down. So the idea is there's a particular sort of bacteria which prefer anaerobic environments. 
So they tend to go towards the bottom of a lake where there's less oxygen in the water. That's where they survive best. So they use their little compass needles to, to find the way down because a straight line between you and the, the North Magnetic Pole will go through the Earth. So the bacteria are really just exploiting this situation so they, they can find their way down. So uh, what we've discovered today is that there's a huge influence that astronomy has on all these creatures. So we've talked about visual cues, magnetic cues, the effect of the Earth's magnetic field, the sun, the moon, the stars, on the way these creatures live. And I don't know if many people would normally think about creatures being influenced by astronomy. Well, I'm, I'm worried we've been speaking for nearly 10 minutes and we haven't mentioned sex. So <laughs> I, I think this is an important issue here. Um, well, we've, we've already talked about the birds and the bees. I must point that out. That, that's true. You're right. But yeah, I was going to mention coral reefs. We find this around Australia, particularly coral reefs are made of individual coral organisms, which are animals, and they need to reproduce. And they're, they're sort of stuck in hard calcium shell-like uh, structures. They can't really get out and get to know each other that way. So what they do is to coordinate the release of eggs and sperm. And they do this by seemingly tracking the, the lunar cycle so that there's a particular night when, and it's generally a full moon, when all, all the coral will just spawn at the same time. And, and that's how they, they manage to reproduce. And it's interesting you mentioned that because I read a paper called Photoreceptors in the Cynodarian Hosts Allow Symbiotic Corals to Sense Blue Moonlight. Um, these symbiotic corals have a high level of photoreceptor sensitivity in the blue region of the spectrum from around 480 nanometers, which coincidentally gives these corals the ability to sense the blue portion of lunar irradiance. So it just so happens to fit in exactly with moonlight. So when this moonlight comes out, generally a few days after the full moon, this spawning occurs. Okay, and they're, they're doing it by wavelength. So they're not really yes. seeing they're not really seeing a big spherical object in the sky. They're just noticing the wavelength of light in the water is changed. That's right. So the uh, the phrase they used in this paper was photoreceptive sensitivity. Mm -hmm. Good. And I, I've noticed that there's some um, uh, recent research where they've surveyed different coral reefs and found this synchronicity in spawning is really only in areas where there's fairly unsettled conditions. So in, in a, a protected gulf or a beach, uh, they'll just spawn whenever. There's no sort of evolutionary drive for them to synchronise their spawning. But if the weather is more unpredictable and there, there might be you know, several nights where there's big storms and lots of waves and lots of turbulence in the water, that creates problems, I guess, for those um, or the ancestral corals that, that settled in those areas. So it's those corals that have evolved this synchronicity in, in their spawning. You know, this huge area of coral will spawn virtually on the same night of, of a particular year, presumably because that, that's the night where there's the highest chance of there being no storms and there being calm conditions for that short period of time. Well, I've uh, certainly learnt a lot today. Yes, me too. All right, should we do a wrap-up? Okay.
Thanks for listening. This is Steve Nerlich from Cheap Astronomy, www.cheapastro.com. And this is The Ordinary Guy from the Brains Matter podcast, www.brainsmatter.com. Cheap Astronomy offers an educational website where brains really do matter. No ads, no profit, just good science. Bye. Bye for now. Well, should we? why don't we read this intro that we did and um, that'll warm us up a bit. All right. All right. Hi, this is The Ordinary Guy from the Brains Matter podcast, www.brainsmatter.com. And this is... Oh, I, did I say this isn't? You, no, you said this is. <laughs> oh, <that's... laughs> Let me start again. Yep.